I'm Alyssa. Welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, strange history. Today, we're going to be talking about a dictator. Kind of. He's a drug lord, a CIA operative, and an all-around pretty bad guy. Also, several callbacks told episodes will make appearances in this episode. So if something catches your ear, make sure you retrace your steps and learn more about some of the things that we talk about. I don't like the way that reads. You wrote it. I, I know, but I don't like the way that it reads. It's fine. It's <laughs> fine. Episode 29, Five Scar General. Manuel Antonio Noriga Morena was born on February 11th in 1938 in Panama City to a poor Colombian family. He was raised by a family friend and received a top education in one of the best high schools in Panama, going on to attend Chorillos, Chorillos Military School in Lima, Peru on a scholarship. He graduated in 1962 uh, with a major or specialization, I didn't really know how to explain it, um, in engineering. He then returned to Panama and was commissioned to be a sub-lieutenant in the National Guard, uh, being stationed in Colón. He rose through the ranks and became very close with Captain Omar Torrijos. Nori oh my god. Noriega was in a coup that overthrew the government of Arnulfo Arias, which was president of Panama from, and I needed to write down every single time that he was president because it was very funny to me. October 1st, 1940 to October 9th, 1940, November 24th, 1949 to May 9th, 1951, October 1st, 1968 to October 11th, 1968. <laughs> so sometimes he was president for a couple days, and then one time he got like six months in, or a year and six months, sorry. Oh my God, that's great. But to be fair, Arias had also organized a coup to get to be president, like, multiple times, so... So, is this entire country just coup after coup after coup? Eventually, until the U.S. got involved. Oh, wow, U.S. stabilization. <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, but this coup led to Dorio's rise to power, and Noriga later defeated a coup that actually tried to take down Dorio's, or he was, like, part of it. Um, he was loyal and this paid off. He got promoted to lieutenant colonel in 1970, shortly after becoming the chief of military intelligence. And he also ran like a secret police force called G2. Didn't write it down, but I remembered it. Uh, he terrorized and harassed anyone who criticized Torrijos and he became one of the most feared men in Panama. So we're jumping right in with the fact that this guy's just bad. But he didn't really do anything good. He went to a good high school, got his degree, and came back and was like, I'm, gonna, I'm here to fuck shit up. I respect it, though. See, this is what public school does to people. I mean, I told you earlier, I didn't write this down, but he, as a teenager, became very interested in, in people like Ho Chi Minh and, and Genghis Khan, so... Do you think that he was... Do you think if he was still alive and a teenager today, he'd have a podcast? Probably. I'm willing to believe that he would. I bet it'd be about probably like other dictators. Maybe. 
1971, Noriega was asked by the United States CIA to travel to Havana to help secure the release of two American freighter crews which had been seized by Cuba. During this time, there were numerous reports of Noriega smuggling drugs. This is why the U.S. gets involved. Uh, money. Drugs and money. There's a little bit more. Oh, for sure. But this is where it begins. I mean, yeah. In 1971 is where it began of them getting involved with Noriga and asking him to basically be a spy. I don't know. In 1981, Torrijos dies in a plane crash, and for two years, Noriga struggled against military and civilian leaders, eventually defeating them, becoming uh, command of the National Guard in 1983. He unified all of the armed forces into one Panamanian defense force, and then promoted himself to general. Naturally. Because that's what you do. He fixed elections, installed puppet government officials. Um, he also sold American intelligence to Cuba and Eastern European governments. I couldn't tell you which ones, but this was the 1980s, and so I'm going to assume it was the USSR. Oh, for sure. It was definitely Russia. 100% has to be. I mean, so they, they are Eastern Europe, if you think the, about it. That is, yeah, Eastern Europe. In the mid-1980s, Noriga allegedly murdered Hugo Spadafora, which was an opponent of his, which you know a little bit more about than I do. Yes, yes. Do you want me to explain that now? Yeah. Or I tell my portion? No, you can explain it now. Okay, so... Hugo Spadafora would be found dead in 1985. He was decapitated. His head was left inside of a United States Postal Services container. Due to, let's call it circumstantial evidence, which was just a CIA wiretap, they managed to hear a conversation between Noriega and one of his army officers. The conversation would run pretty simply with the army officers saying, we have the rabid dog, to which Noriega responded with the phrase, and what does one do with a dog with rabies? The United States believed that Noriega was running a very bloody regime in addition to being one of the biggest drug traffickers in the world at this present time. However, we just didn't act on it. We couldn't. Our hands were kind of tied. He played his cards well, and Noriega used the increasing anti-American sentiments to further hold his positions in the country. The national debt of Panama would be defaulted, and the economy shrank by about 20% in less than a year. By 1987, Panamanians organized protests against Noriga. They demanded him out of office, but he responded by just calling a national emergency, shut down all radio stations and newspapers, and forced all of his political enemies into exile. <laughs> I wrote, Brad, how does exile even work? Can you explain it to me so I don't have to Google it? I never thought about it. Yeah, that's... Uh... Did they just, like, put you on a plane and say goodbye, or do you have, like... Well, I mean, it, Time? it works in different ways because when uh, when Napoleon was exiled, they just kicked him out of France. But he had so many followers that even outside of France, he was like, I'm Napoleon. And they were like, fuck, this is the emperor. So then when he came back to France, they kicked him out again and exiled him to an individual island in the middle of fucking nowhere. And he stayed there for pretty much the rest of his life. So basically, they're just like, yeah, you need to leave. Like, kind of being kicked out of a classroom. 
Okay. Other other cultures do it different. Like in ancient Athens, if you were a politician and people didn't like you or they didn't agree with your politics, or if you got too popular, they'd exile you by just kicking you out of the city. You couldn't live in town, so therefore you couldn't vote and you had no legal rights in terms of politicking. That was their form of exile. There's like political exile, there's um, just being kicked out of your country exile, self-exile where you just decide you need to leave for everyone's safety. Mood. <laughs> there's all kinds of different things, so it's really hard to break down and say exactly. I just thought I'd ask. Anyway, do you know what kind of government he was running? I'm going to assume that you're going to tell us. Narco-kleptocracy, narco-kleptocracy, um, which is where criminals involved in the drug trade have governmental powers and influence. So every country established with help from the CIA? Y yeah. Yeah. Also maybe... The U.S. too? I was thinking of that. Yeah. We're not going to talk about the war on drugs. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this same year is when the United States finally cut off aid to Panama because uh, they were attempting to get Noriega to actually resign. The following year, in 1988, the United States was like, hmm, maybe we should like get him to stop drug trafficking and money laundering and stuff like that. And other than money... There's other reasons why the United States was involved with Panama so heavily. Um, they never mind their own business. And so the interest in Panama was from the Panama Canal Treaty. So in 1904, Panama gave control to the United States to build the Panama Canal, obviously, which is super important in terms of like trade and moving things around. And they signed this treaty in 1977 between Jimmy Carter and Omar Torrijos to give total control of the canal to Panama by the year 2000. So now that we're in 1988 and 2000 is getting a little bit closer and we have this guy in charge of this country that's about to be in charge of like a major like trade area, like a major traffic area, and he's drug trafficking and money laundering and killing people. It's not who we want in charge of this major thing. Major artery. Yeah, sounds terrible. Um, they were also using Panama to provide American aid to American forces in El Salvador and Nicaragua as well. So there were sort of tie-ins to other countries. And don't forget, they were using Noriega in the beginning to spy on Cuba. But anyway, what happened after 1988, Brad? Oh, well, 1988 would be very interesting, you know. Between Noriega's rise to power in the country, Panama being essentially a dictator's wet dream, you know, anytime that you've got what could be considered a third world country with a massive drug market setting near a major traffic area like the Suez Canal, like the Panama Canal, anywhere where there's oil or let's call it a lack of democratic freedom, the U.S. CIA has to get involved. Oh, for that's, sure. That's kind of our thing. We need to install a, I don't know if you guys can hear the air quotes, a democratic government 
and you know drugs also lots and lots of drugs i mean how else are you going to get cocaine to impoverished neighborhoods here in the united states if you're not bringing it in from other countries oh god <laughs> oh yeah no now in 1988 it was like i said after a massive rise in power from noriega panama would become the center of cocaine trade to the united states and most of northern south america noriega was an absolute drug lord Bully, a dictator, and all around just one big bad man pajama. He owned several homes around the world. He had massive European bank accounts with millions upon millions of dollars, and massively expensive, lavish items were purchased by the dictator. He would even use his own personal fortune to fund his military just to keep his guys on his side. They were absolutely not for the citizenry, not for Panama. They were for Noriega. No one else, nothing else. They didn't care about anyone in their cities. They didn't care about anyone in their country. Personal privacy, that's gone. All they cared about was the fact that this man was giving them paychecks. It was determined very early on, like Alyssa mentioned, that Noriega was selling information to other intelligence agencies. It was most notably Cuba, but he was also selling information to the KGB and the Soviet Union. He would actually lose, air quotes, the 1989 election. The Panamanian people just didn't want him anymore. So he decided that if his constituents didn't want him, he still had, you know, his guys in the military. So while the procession of the newly elected officials was going through Main Street in Panama City, they were just attacked by their own military. They were surrounded, they were killed, executed. The ones who lived were taken and tortured and later executed just outside the city on one of his military bases. And because of the massive power vacuum now, he was like, oh no, I'll be your leader. Someone needs to take care of you. I can't believe this happened. He basically adopted the country like, you know, like a crazy cat lady. He just took in everyone and everything and didn't really care. He also decided that he wouldn't be a president. He wouldn't be an elected official. He is the maximum leader of Panama. Here's the fun thing for this, though. This election was actually going so smoothly that the CIA didn't really need to be involved because Panama was like, no, we don't want this guy. And President Jimmy Carter, former President Jimmy Carter, went down to Panama because this was the perfect display of how democracy works, only for all of this to unfurl while he literally watched this shit happen. So he was very quick to denounce all the actions of Noriega. Hands down, this was something that no one approved of. On December 15, 1989, Noriega stated that there was a state of war between the United States and Panama just out of nowhere. He was like, oh yeah, we're at war. Further exasperating events of the previous years. The Department of the Defense stated that later that day, within less than 24 hours, reports of, Pan of Panama Defense Forces annoying and harassing US troops and citizens in the re region had started to appear. Although nothing would be done quickly enough to divert tragedy. We knew that these guys were starting to get more aggressive. They were getting more intuitive. And we were just like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, he's insane. We don't need to worry about it. And then the following morning, four off-duty U.S. servicemen were stopped outside of a checkpoint in Panama City 
by citizen gangs and PDF members. Unarmed, outnumbered, and surrounded, the private vehicle soldiers attempted to flee. They had no way of fighting back. They just wanted to leave. While they were trying to escape, this, this prompted someone in the crowd to start shooting. Several rounds would strike and kill First Lieutenant Robert Patz of the United States Marine Corps. A nearby American couple who witnessed the event unfurl would also be arrested just because they saw what happened. Sparked by the unprovoked death of a U.S. Marine, the full force of the United States would descend on Panama in numbers unseen and unheard of since the Vietnam War. One of the largest single troop mobilizations in U.S. history. In less than 24 hours, we sent 25,000 soldiers and 300 aircraft to Panama. We were ready for absolute war. The invasion would begin in force on the 20th of December, with the bombings of PDF headquarters, as well as personal properties of Noriega. And this would also be the first usage of the big, black, beautiful death known as the F-117 Nighthawk. And wow, like I said, tie-ins to previous episodes. If you listened to last week's episode about the U-2 spy plane, you'll recognize a few names here. Coming from the Burbank, California Skunk Works, made by Lockheed Martin, the F-117 Nighthawk was a first-generation stealth fighter bomber. It was a massive, solid black machine, top speeds of almost 700 miles an hour, no radar signature whatsoever. There were only 57 of these in existence, and we only needed two of them. They were capable of flying in across all of South America and Central America to Panama, drop their shit, and leave without anyone seeing them. You couldn't see them at night. They had no radar signatures. They were moving so quick, you couldn't even track them with the human eye. They're just there and gone, and they bombed the absolute shit out of Panama. Two planes destroyed an entire airport, most of the city slums, and several surrounding neighborhoods, because these guys were given basically no orders other than bomb shit. And that's exactly what they did. So they just, I'm not surprised, never mind, I was going to say, so they just murdered millions of, or thousands of innocent people? Yes, it's the United States. Yes, it's the U.S. military in the 1990s. Um, (laughs) it's the 2020s, bestie, they're still doing that. A day after the first bombs dropped and troops would arrive on the ground, one of Noriega's lieutenant colonels would take his troops and just flee into the mountains. He knew that he could not fight the U.S. in urban combat, so he was like, oh, we'll fight them in the hills, in the trees. Apparently, we didn't learn our lesson from Vietnam because we wrecked their shit. And in less than a day, this guy was like, nope, we're done. We surrender. He did this without the authorization of Noriega. And this this one soldier was the last holdout. Noriega had already fled the entire area. In all, 23 American soldiers would lose their lives. Two were actually killed by other American soldiers, just friendly fire. Like on accident? I found no information. Okay. Uh, We killed 400 PDF troopers and an estimated 209 to 250 citizens, despite the fact that we blew up almost everything that we can see. Yeah, I'm going to say that that's... uh... Yeah. An incorrect number. Now, as soon as information about this broke out, the United Nations were very quick to condemn the invasion and told uh, told the entire world that this was not like a good thing. This was a violation of international law. 
sparked by the United States. We were the ones at fault. Noriega had already fled, and he attempted to find refuge at two embassies in the city, although they were already fully locked down by U.S. troops, and he couldn't even get close. Finally, he and a group of four of his men found an embassy for the Holy See, and they took their place inside. So yes, not only are we going to be talking about the CIA this episode, but we're back on our Catholic kick. Uh, what, did we ever leave it? For a while, I think. Maybe a bit. Yeah. Now, the United States troops could not enter the building because of old treaties, but they did call in Tier 1 operators to secure the area and do their thing. Harmon, I just love your mustache, man. It is so defined. You look so mature with that. Thanks, man. Upkeep is a bit of a struggle, but I do it for the vibes. Upkeep? You know, I actually have some stuff that can help with that. Have you heard of the beard struggle? Oh, you mean the thing I deal with every day? No, the company. The Beard Struggle is a company dedicated to the growth and preservation of beards. They offer a long range of products from oils and bombs to butters, shampoos, heated brushes, and even growth supplements. It wasn't in the script, but that does sound wonderful, but... Conditions, rollers, cologne! Brad, I... Go check out all the cool stuff over on thebeardstruggle.com and use coupon code STRANGE at checkout for 15% off your order. 15% with the code STRANGE? <laughs> I do like saving. Once more, that's thebeardstruggle.com and apply coupon code STRANGE at checkout for 15%. That's code STRANGE. Build yourself a better, stronger beard. Now, when people think special forces, the mind always goes to Green Berets and Navy SEALs. We needed someone cooler. We have special forces that are more special than Navy SEALs. Everybody knows the SEALs. The SEALs have tons of movies. The SEALs have an amazing track record of doing the things that they are told to do and getting out. They destabilize entire governments. They're great at assassination. Really good at just rescuing hostages, but we needed someone different. Now, one of the best of the best special forces groups in the United States actually recruits out of the Navy SEALs. So you can be too good for the Navy SEALs? Yes. At which point you are contracted into the U.S. Army's 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. Delta Force. The SFODD is one of the most insanely phenomenal if that's a nice enough word, special forces groups in the entire world. They recruit out of the SEALs, out of the Green Berets, out of Force Recon. There's guys from the SAS. They have guys from the French GIGN. They bring in special forces operators from around the world, and they're like, you're cool, but you want to be cooler. And you hardly ever hear about Delta Force. There were so many acronyms. <laughs> yes. The military, the military world is nothing but acronyms. I've noticed. But we looked at the situation here with a guy cowering in a church embassy that we just couldn't go into. And we, we can't bomb it for some reason. We did everywhere else in the world. Because it's not Panama's. And? It's the Vatican. It's a whole other country. I'm just dude. surprised that we cared, though. That's my thing. That's what I'm saying. We didn't have any beef with 
the Vatican at that time. That time. Anyway, so Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, which we're just going to go ahead and we're just going to call Delta Force. These guys looked at the situation in this building they couldn't storm with this Panamanian dictator and four of his guys, and they're like, you know what we should do? We should have a rock concert. And that's exactly what they did. One of the guys in the group, Special Forces Sergeant John Bishop, was very happy to lend his commanding officers and the rest of Delta Force a Van Halen cassette tape. And there were a lot of other songs too, but that one is the one that is explicitly mentioned in all the sources that I found. And they just played music, ridiculously loud music. Oh, and then they, they took a little field near the embassy and they turned it into a helicopter port. And they started to just drive trucks around and gun the engines and race all night. They used spotlights to flood the building with light. And they just forced this drug-dealing, murderous old man into a state of sleep deprivation psychosis. And he was slowly going insane. And after 10 days, he was like, no, please, no more. Well, they stopped playing music because the Holy See was like, hey, could we, could we not maybe do that? And then we stopped, and then he eventually gave up. Right. Like the next day. But I have other songs. We need to hear all of the songs from Noriega's. I'm not going to listen all list all 87, but I'll list the more ones that I feel like people would know. What, 43 and a half. 43 and a half. One of them, which I thought was funny, um, Bon Jovi's "Wanted Dead or Alive." <laughs> Incredibly ironic for this, really. Oh, I have another list that's a little bit more concise. Let me find it my 70,000 sources. I have it closed because this is the worst thing. Much better. Nowhere to run? <laughs> <laughs> if I had a rocket launcher? Refuge by Tom Petty. This means war by Jonah Jett. It's an ACDC in there. They played Ghostbusters. All right. Freedom. Give It Up by Casey and the Sunshine Band. And my favorite, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. They rickrolled this man. For days. Well, it's not like he had any particular place to go. By Chuck Berry. Anyway, there's an entire playlist on YouTube of 87 songs that were used. It's called Manuel Noriega's Favorite Playlist. I will leave it linked. This was done by um, somebody who read the declassified documents and went through and found every song that he possibly could. <laughs> and then made a playlist. So I'll link it because it's funny. I love that. Anyway, he was a big fan of opera, so that's probably why the rock music bothered him so much. Because I was thinking about it, and we've had this conversation kind of. I feel like I could last more than 10 days. But if I had never heard rock music in my life, because he probably hadn't, if he only really listened <clears throat> excuse me, to opera. Well, I feel and, like... Go ahead. And we used it and still use that form of psychological warfare today. Right. They would go into situations against the Taliban in, in that war that never really ended um 
and play rock music and heavy metal music to these people who've never heard something like that. They would play the I Love You song from Barney, Sesame Street music. And a part of some of the training that you do in some special force stuff like that, they make you sit there and listen to songs like that on for hours. There was one, um, I think he was in the CIA, who was interviewed about the sort of psychological warfare that the United States Armed Forces use. And he was like, I had to listen to the Barney I Love You song for hours. He was like, I wanted to blow my brains out. Oh, so looking at this, this is actually the first time we used music as psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. And then it never stopped. <laughs> and then it never stopped. One of the most famous examples of music during, it's not necessarily wartime, but it kind of is, was during the FBI siege of Waco. During, you know, the whole Waco. Oh, David Crash. Yes. They played pop songs. Yes. Yes. Tons of pop songs. Oh, and also evangelical Christian music. Because let's be honest. If I had to sit and listen to music for days, nonstop, I could deal with most of it. But when you start getting into gospel songs, (laughs) they drive me insane because first and foremost, I'm not a good person. And all that music's trying to tell me is that I am a good person. And I know that's a lie. See, I worked retail. I mean, I know you have too, but- Mariah Carey's Christmas song. (laughs) The store I worked in would play, like, themed music, as most do, right, for, like, the holidays and stuff. Halloween playlist was bomb. The Christmas playlist wasn't too bad until it got to this one particular song. And if I had to hear this particular song for 10 days in a row, that would be it for me. Because it was, like, the song, and then there was, like, a huge space of nothing, and then a story about Jesus. And while that's fine and, and that's dandy, it was, like, a public store. That, like, people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus Christ is our Savior are coming into. It felt very offensive for the time that I worked there. But, like... So that's the song. I don't know what it's called. But I think just hearing that stupid fucking story, even, like, the three times a day in, like, a shift, I I think I'd lose it. So that's that's That's, what it would be for you? That's what it would be for me. That particular Christmas song. But I don't remember any of it. If I had to pick one... I don't remember who sings it, so let me let me make sure. I'm not gonna give anyone the power. If you know the song, okay. So for me, me, I know the name of the song. I just didn't know who who sang it. "Seminal Wind" by John Anderson. I don't know why. I heard it once, and I just I could die a happy man if I never heard it again. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of songs I hate, but I feel like after a while, I have, like, a non-normal brain. I feel like after a while, I would just be, like, singing along and, like, no longer hating it as much as I thought. I can also sleep through most things, so, like, floodlights and revving engines, I don't feel like would particularly. No, for you, it would be the silence if there was just no sound. No. I feel like no sound would drive you insane. I can make my own sound. Can tippy tap on stuff. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Noriega would finally suffer a complete and total mental breakdown and surrender on January 3rd, 1990. He would be detained as a prisoner of war and would be sent to Miami, Florida for trial. The United States would press charges against Noriega, and the trial would officially begin on September 6th, 1991, and it would run until April 9th, 
1992. At the end of the ordeal, he would be charged with the selling of state secrets, drug trafficking, racketeering, and conspiracy, netting him what should have been 140 years in prison, but they decided that that was a little too much, so they dropped it down to 40 years instead. His sentence would then be reduced to 30 years and then 17 years. This trial would be a landmark case, as it was the first time that the former leader of another country would be tried in American courts of law. He was also fined $100 for bribery, which to me sounds like a bribe in of itself. Like, it... So he bribed somebody and then had to pay $100? Yeah. As a... Is it fine? Yeah. Okay, I hate the United States. I don't. A hundred bucks. Homie was a millionaire. I mean, his net worth was insane. Three hundred million dollars, and they charged him a hundred bucks. That's. But the reason that his sentence was dropped from 140 years down to just 40 years was because he quoted ancient scholars like Herodotus and Aristotle and also did his entire trial just in Spanish, even though he could speak English, which just confused everyone there. That's honestly (laughs) a vibe. (laughs) Same. The one time that he did speak English, he blamed his rise in power up to being the leader of Panama the first time on George H.W. Bush. And then the second time when he was like, you know, maximum leader of Panama, he blamed it on Hillary Clinton. She was the Secretary of State. Right. She was the president. But like, I, I don't feel like either of those two was like, hey, you should murder a bunch of people. I'm like, become the leader of Panama. We'll help you. I mean... I don't know how the government works. I mean, that's fair, but like... They very easily could have been just just like that. I don't know. During pretrial, the U.S. government would dictate that he was paid $332,000 through the United States Army and CIA while while he was on their payroll. He stated that that was false and did have evidence that that paycheck was actually closer to around $10 million. Upon learning this information... The presiding judge just threw it out of court because it was not necessary to the trial itself. Despite the horrors that this man would inflict upon the world, his sentence would end in 2007 on the 9th of September, and he would be released for good behavior. And I think you have a little bit more about everything that happened with him in France. Not really, but I have a timeline pulled up, and I made myself like a little link. I said, in case you didn't mention it, I had it ready. Um, so shortly after, or no, shortly before. Yeah, okay. So on August 24th, 2007, so before what you just said, Judge William Hovaler ruled that Noriga can be extradited to France to serve a 10-year prison sentence for money laundering. Um, his attorneys argued that his status as a prisoner of war meant that he should be sent back to Panama. 
So when he was scheduled for his mandatory release date from prison on September 9, 2007, um, he was not actually released because of the appeals of the extradition to France. Interesting. So he was supposed to be released for that reason, but because his lawyers appealed the extradition to France, because as soon as he got released, that's where he was going to go, then they were like, well, we'll just keep you then. And then... Uh, Two years later, in 2009, is when the Court of Appeals heard the arguments of Noriega's bid to avoid extradition to France. Uh, the court addressed whether his status as a prisoner of war under the rules of the Geneva Convention um, and decided that he just has to go back to Panama and serve his sentence. Um, he appealed as a writ, a petition for habeas corpus. He wanted a new, a new trial because of habeas corpus, and they were like, no. Was fine. Um, then he was extradited to France um, when Hillary Clinton signed the extradition order. So she came back up. He was found guilty of money laundering in French court, sentenced to seven years in prison by 2010. And then in 2011, the French Foreign Ministry announced that it had begun process of extraditing Noriga to Panama with the consent of the United States. He was wanted in Panama um, for, you know, murdering Hugo. Spotifora, <laughs> and other criminals or political rivals. I mean, those words kind of are interchangeable. Yeah, for him, yeah, I guess. Um, so he was extradited to Panama on December 11th, 2011. A couple months later, in February, he was hospitalized in Panama City for hypertension and a possible stroke. But May of that year, he was hospitalized again for bronchitis. And then... This is my favorite thing. In July 2014, Noriga filed a fucking lawsuit against Activision Blizzard. The game company? Yes, the game company. He wanted money and claimed that they harmed his reputation for um, having a character, having him in Call of Duty Black Ops 2. Harmed his reputation. They said that it... Or he said that it portrayed him as a murderer, kidnapper, and an enemy of the state. So what's what's the harm to his reputation here? He did it to himself. And he wants to sit there and be like, this American game company made me look like a murderer and an enemy of the state. Bestie. You are! You're in jail. For murder and being an enemy of the state. So by October of 2014, a judge completely dismissed the lawsuit um, because of the First Amendment here in the United States. Uh, it fell under that category of using his image for something like that because Noriko wasn't the only sort of like, quote unquote, historical character in the Call of Duty games. Right. They're based on war. Right. I mean, John Fitzgerald Kennedy fights zombies in one. Right. Like Fidel Castro was in one of them. You think, no, he was in three of them. When he was still alive and he didn't complain, he thought it was cool as hell. Yeah, but he wanted money and said it ruined his reputation. Of course. Um, in June 2015, he appeared on Telemetro, which is a local broadcast in Panama, and he apologized for the offenses of his regime and his own actions that led up to the 1989 U.S. invasion and his outing. And I just wonder if anyone forgave him. Probably not. Oh, certainly. Certainly not. 
In May of 2016, Noriega's doctors said that he needed surgery to remove a benign brain tumor. Um, that following year, the Panama courts allowed him to be put under house arrest so that he could go get this surgery and just recover at home rather than being in a prison. So he got his surgery on March in March of 2017. He suffered a severe brain hemorrhage and was placed in a medically induced coma. Do you think the doctors did it on purpose? Maybe. There's no controversy about it or anything like that. I mean, he was old, but like... They very well might have. Because he was in his 90s at this point. Maybe. Welcome to Strange History, the podcast <laughs> where we talk about historical conspiracies. On May 29th, 2017, Juan Carlos Varea, who was the president of Panama at the time, announced the death of Manuel Noriega. So his... Yeah, I didn't think he died that long ago. No, he fell pretty quickly also. I feel like a lot of like dictators are usually... In power for a lot longer. Yeah, and he had, what, five years? Something like that. Because he took power in 83... And then by 89, the U.S. was like, all right, he's done. Yeah. I mean, how long was, like... Bill Castro was in power most of his life, wasn't he? Probably help if I put how long. Yeah. 1976 to 2008. And you got Stalin. <laughs> he never really quit. No. <laughs> Even after he died, he was still in power. His death is very interesting as well. He's just an interesting character. I got to write a paper on him. He's an interesting man. Like, looking at dictators, they're all horrible, terrible like 100% hands down, but some of them lead very interesting lives. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. there's nothing else to say to that. Yeah. We're going to cover another dictator later on in the season. Are we? Nero. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> A spoiler, forgot about that one. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> We looked up because we wanted something spooky and scary for October. You guys are going to love our October specials. Yes, 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 yes. But we looked up worst men in history, and Nero was like... He's up there. He's like top two. Yeah. Dude's insane. <laughs> but we'll get there in October. Hopefully. I think. I think it's October. It's October. Oh, yeah, it is. It's October. Anyway, Manuel Noriga and his rise, fall... It wasn't really a rise or a fall. It was more like just a trip. It was just running. He was he knee, was stumbling through. This knee gave out. You should see the way she's looking at me. It's a personal attack. I'm currently injured. Injured is not the way I would say it. You can hardly walk. I walked up the stairs to do this podcast. If you say so, man. If you say so. Today is August 26th, 2022. So today in history, I have, I have a few things. 
There's a lot of things, kind, actually. Kind of. On August 26th, 1682, Edmund Haley observed the comet that was later named after him, which you can learn about in episode 16. <laughs> Callback number two. In 1883, Krakatoa, a volcano in Indonesia, began to erupt. 36,000 people were killed in the eruption and the tsunami it caused, and did you know that is the loudest sound ever recorded? I didn't know that at all. It actually reverbed around the planet, I think, like four times. Oh my god. You could hear the explosion from the other side of the world four times. Sorry, my brain in the 1800s immediately goes to work, and I'm just like, do you mean to tell me that somebody <laughs> where we work in 1883 could have heard it? Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? Because this is back when we actually knew how to do our jobs in the 1800s, kind of. Could you imagine just sitting around on the front lawn, reading <laughs> your book, probably like Pride and Prejudice or something, and just hearing in the distance, oh. The 1800s, I feel like that's terrifying. Yeah, and then hearing it three more times, I bet people thought the world was ending. Well, it did for... 36,000 people. Yeah. And an entire island, and most of country of Indonesia and a lot of other things. It was all I would say ash spread is oh for sure. Like if Yellowstone erupted, the ash spread would be so great that it would travel right to the east coast of the United States, all the way down into Mexico and up to Canada as well. I might do just a little like three minute special on Krakatoa because I had to learn about it in school. Okay. I had an entire class my first semester dedicated just to Krakatoa and its fallout. I had a whole class about the Holocaust. Which is interesting, but I mean, like, I can understand learning about the Holocaust. Learning about some random-ass volcano, that's... Well, it wasn't random to 36,000 people. Kind of was. They didn't wake up that morning and say, you know what I hope happens today? I hope that volcano right over there explodes. Nah, there was one us. person, and you know it. There probably was. There was one person who was mad at the world that day, and then it happened, and he's just, like, staring up at the sky like... Oh, oh my no. god. <laughs> anyway. I know I want to do this one, so no, you can do that fine. one. Sorry. In 1907, Harry Houdini escapes from chains underwater in 57 seconds in San Francisco, California, which you can learn more about in episode 26. <laughs> in 1937, General Francisco Franco's nationalist troops conquered uh, Santander during the Spanish Civil War, which you can learn about in episode 12, which was my first episode being on the podcast. It's not good. It was good. It was all right. It didn't have a clever title, which is kind of disappointing, but... Go back and... No, it's all right. And in 1920, I feel like this one's one that you need to say. White... Yeah. White women got their right to vote as the 19th Amendment took place. And I wanted to specify that white women got the right to vote... But women of color did not until the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So, 1920, white women could vote. So there you go. That's the day in history with callbacks and links to previous episodes where you can learn more about some of the fun I'm, things that we discussed here on the Strange History Podcast. I'm not going to link them because I feel like you could just scroll up or down. Charlie agrees, or Jinx, whichever puppy that was.
you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange History. We hope you enjoyed dropping down another CIA and Catholic-fueled episode about the horrors of our modern world. Do you think we're on a watch list with the Vatican also? Maybe. (laughs) The Pope is typing away, writing a holy letter. Because I think all of season two. Most of season two. I have to go back and check. (laughs) I think every episode of season two was just us Catholic bashing and not even meaning to. We don't mean to. It just happens. Somehow. It's fine. Even things that we don't think will have Catholic association because we tried so hard for this season to not include things that are just straight Catholicism. But it's happened in in two of... Two of the four episodes. Of four, yeah. We're not even trying, guys, I promise. Anyway, <laughs> be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Strange, the number four history, so you can see us eventually get put on a watch list. And Probably. We just hit a thousand followers a couple, like a week ago. I know it's like a thousand, like eight, eight, 80 something, but like. We're three away from being at 1100. Really? Yes. Well, then go follow us on Twitter. We're fun. I post <laughs> memes sometimes, and there's fun, random old history facts. And we shout out a lot of our favorite podcasts, which is always fun, too. So it's not just about us, it's about... Yeah. There's like a whole, what is it, hashtag pod nation or something? Yeah, all for indie <laughs> podcast creators. So follow us, and you can find other fun podcasts, like right. us. Or not like us, because some of them are... Some of them are not... Very different. Which is much, fun. much much different. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, or really wherever your ears are listening. And always. Uh, No. Do not mess up. I didn't mean to mess it up. The famous tagline that I worked so hard on. Get out of here. And of course, always enjoy the strange weird things that make us us.